You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. The teaching text this morning comes from Matthew 15, 21 to 23. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall down from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Um, you will notice that the wooden lectern that we usually use for teaching is, um, is no longer here. If you were at the picnic, you will know that it was given to um, Tyler as a gift and is currently being shipped to Portland. And I am having uh, a time adjusting to this one, so I'm currently propping up my notes so that it's the same angle as the previous one because I'm clearly a creature of habit. But um, we're, we're going to make it work. Um, I want to just start this morning by just saying thank you, church. Um, thank you for showing up and, and showering the Statens with love and gratitude. I know that that probably felt like a choice for some people. Maybe you didn't quite feel ready to celebrate, but it was the right thing to do. And, and I want to thank you for just honoring their journey and sending them off with, with love and blessing. It was really, uh, really appreciated by them. But this Sunday is really the beginning of a brand new chapter in the life of our church. And I fully recognize that we find ourselves in this kind of liminal space, a kind of in-between, as Liz talked about. You know, we've said goodbye to Tyler as our lead pastor, but we're still not exactly sure what's next. Um, For me, it's like when you end a chapter of a book and you turn over to the next chapter and all you see is just the page that tells you the title of the next chapter with a blank page. It's kind of like you know that a new chapter is coming, but you just don't know exactly what that's going to look like. And for some of you, that may feel concerning or confusing or overwhelming. And for some, that probably feels exciting and hopeful and creates an opportunity for dreaming. In scripture, there's an interesting passage in the book of Ezra, uh, which is a short book in the Old Testament, which describes the returning of the people of Israel from their time in exile. And the people had been exiled to Babylon. Uh, They became a foreign people in a foreign land. And then after 70 years in captivity, um, the, the first group of Jews were returning to their fallen Jerusalem. And they returned to find their glorious temple completely destroyed. And after some months, people started to bring whatever resources and gifts they had to be used in the rebuilding of the temple. And we're told that in the second month of the second year, the work of rebuilding began. And then the day arrived when the appointed builders laid the new foundation of the temple. And I want to read to you what it says. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph with cymbals, 
took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. Similar to what we've just been singing about. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. And I think this is a really important text for us right now today, and I realize it's not our actual teaching text. I will get to that in just a moment, don't worry. But some of us are just ready to jump into this next chapter. You're like, okay, we've done the grieving and the processing. We've sent them off. Let's, let's move on. Let's move forward with whatever this next season is going to look like. I'm ready to dream. I'm ready to build. Let's do this thing. And some of you are like, I, I still need a minute. You know, I still feel sad. I've lost people I love. I've been around this community for a long time, and I'm not fully ready to let go of what was in order to embrace what is yet to come. And both of these experiences are perfectly normal. In any community, at any time where real honesty exists, there will always be this tension of grieving and rejoicing side by side. The real question for us is how do we journey forward together when we have differing emotional responses to our present circumstances? How do those who are ready to rebuild bring their much needed energy and enthusiasm and dreaming without being made to feel guilty about that, whilst also having patience and compassion for those whose sense of loss may still feel a bit overwhelming? And how do those who are grieving feel all they feel and not feel guilty about that, but also not indulge those feelings or drag their feet on the journey forward. Those who are still grieving, that is okay, but you also can't stay in that place forever. After any loss, the invitation is to journey forward. You have to keep living, to keep growing and evolving. There is no going back, only a journeying through. And those of you who are ready to run and dream, we need you. We need your energy and dreaming and we also will need your patience and sensitivity. What each of those groups of people in Ezra needed was grace for one another, and so do we. Today, we're returning to the teaching series that we were in before Tyler gave his final two sermons. It's called Resilient Hearts. And it's based on the idea that we live in a port city. We live in a city that there's constant change, it's transient, people come and people go, and we need to be a people of resilient hearts. We've talked about having hearts that are sourced and settled in Christ as the only one who never changes. We've talked about having surrendered hearts, being a people who freely give away what we have freely received. We've talked about the importance of grieving well, creating space to grieve our individual and collective losses. And today marks the day when we take our first collective tentative step into a new reality as Oaks Church Brooklyn. And so today, we're gonna to talk about the need for gracious hearts. This word gracious is most often used in scripture to describe God himself. Psalm 145 says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. 
And these two words, gracious and compassionate, are really similar and often interchangeable. In fact, if you look up the meaning of one, you'll most likely find the other one listed there as well, alongside words like mercy, love, goodness, and kindness. To be gracious means to be disposed towards being kind and compassionate, extending unmerited favor and love to one another. It also speaks of generosity, a kind of self-sacrificial giving, and I can't help myself, I just love you this much kind of giving. This is the grace that God extends towards us. Grace is divine. It is the very nature of God. He is good to all. He can't help it. It's who he is. It's in his nature. And as followers of Jesus, guess what? We are called to be gracious. As we have freely received from the Father, so we are invited to give to others. So let's look at some examples in scripture. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3.12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. 1 Peter 3, 8, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And as the people of God, as the family of God, we are called to demonstrate to each other what God is like. What does it look like for us to lean into a more full expression of the gracious heart of God towards one another? We are all desperately in need of the kind of grace that brings healing and freedom Last week, uh, my daughter and I were doing a science experiment. She had received um, this kind of growing crystals kit from her grandparents for Christmas. She likes anything to do with rocks and sparkly things. And she was very excited about doing this together. Um, but it involved some chemicals, some glove wearing, some mask wearing. And so I told her that we could only do it if her little sister was napping. And so we're in the middle of this. And Livy, her younger sister, decides that nap time is over and prematurely joins us. Now, anyone who knows me well will know that I'm not a of multitasking. So um, experiment with chemicals over here and meltdown, I'm overtired but won't sleep, I need a snack over here, is just not conducive to me reading instructions properly. And so I missed a really important step in the process. And afterwards when the girls were settled and playing in their room together, I realized the error of my ways. And truth be told, I was very nervous about telling my five-year-old that I had made a mistake in the experiment. Um, and so I, I called her in and I just said, love, I need to tell you something. Mommy made a mistake in the experiment. I didn't read the instructions properly. I missed an important step. And as a result, I, I just don't know if it's actually gonna work. I'm really sorry. Pause, close my eyes, brace for impact. Um, and to my surprise and delight, she said, that's okay, mommy. Everybody makes mistakes the first time they try something. And off she skipped. And silly as it may sound, tears welled up in my eyes because I was experiencing her being gracious towards me. She could very easily have gotten upset, had a tantrum, which, I mean, honestly, I anticipated her doing. But what a delight to experience kindness and a generosity of spirit when I was expecting the opposite. Isaiah 30 says this, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. In some translations, it says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. We begin today first by remembering that regardless of who we are, regardless of how you're doing, the Lord longs to be gracious to you today. 
He can't wait for you to experience his goodness and compassion. Our teaching text today is an interesting one, uh, particularly in light of the theme of gracious hearts. Often this passage has deeply bothered me uh, because on first glance, Jesus doesn't at all appear to be gracious towards this woman in need. In fact, he seems to be intentionally withholding compassion from her. And I wanna unpack this passage together in order to see what we can learn from both the people in the story about grace. So this passage from Matthew 15 is also found in Mark 7. Some details are the same. We also get some additional details when we read both side by side. We read that Jesus once again is withdrawing into rest and solitude. The passage directly before this one is yet another encounter with the Pharisees where um, they are opposing Jesus. They're trying to trick him with accusations and questions. Jesus was intentionally retreating to a place where he and his disciples could be away from the Jewish crowds, away from this Jewish opposition. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities north of Israel, actually port cities as well on the Mediterranean coast. Now Matthew's clear that Jesus was not in the actual cities, but somewhere in that region. In Mark's gospel, it explicitly says that Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there. And yet even in this region outside of Galilee, he couldn't help, he couldn't keep his, his presence a secret, his reputation had gone before him. Now, in Matthew, the racial context of this encounter is made explicit, not only in describing this woman from being from that region, but also in naming her as a Canaanite. In terms of biblical vocabulary, this description directly connects her with the enemies of the Israelites in the Old Testament narrative. The Canaanites were known for being the most persistent threat to the people of Israel. There is no indication in the passage that Jesus is in any way seeking out contact or interactions with the local people, but rather instead he is sought out by a particular woman. It says, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Now this phrase that she is shouting should be somewhat familiar to us. Tyler talked about it a couple of weeks ago in the context of the healing of blind Bartimaeus and the two blind men in Matthew 9 who also repeatedly cried out these same words. Now the title Son of David is a Jewish title for the Messiah. The big difference of course here is that this time these words are not being uttered by a Jew but by a Gentile. She also uses the term Lord repeatedly, which in combination with the title Son of David implies that this Gentile woman has some understanding of who Jesus is as the Messiah. And it's important that we recognize that as a Gentile woman crying out to Jesus as Messiah and appealing for his help would have been extremely out of the ordinary. Jesus himself may even have been surprised by the use of this title in this foreign context. And interestingly in this passage, unlike the blind man, the woman is not crying out for mercy for herself, but for her daughter who is sick. This passage has a lot in common with the encounter with the Roman centurion in Matthew 8. In both incidents, we have a Gentile who is bold and persistent in requesting the help of Jesus, not for themselves, but for someone they love who is not even physically present with them. In both of these cases, the strangeness of this encounter, the remarkable nature of a non-Jew asking Jesus for help should not be overlooked. So this woman, desperate for the healing of her beloved child, is repeatedly crying out for the attention of the one who she believes can help. Only the fact that she is crying out repeatedly indicates that she was having to work incredibly hard to even be acknowledged. This is what we read. 
Jesus did not answer a word. So, in the context of our title, Gracious Hearts, you might be thinking this is an extremely odd passage because Jesus is blatantly ignoring someone who is asking for help. Is he playing hard to get? What exactly is going on here? Well, the silence of Jesus does not dissuade this woman at all. She continues shouting all the more loudly, badgering them with her cries for help. She will not stop until she is acknowledged. And her persistent shouting is irritating the disciples so much that they decide to intervene. And they tell Jesus, make her go away. In fact, the tense here indicates that they asked him more than once to send her away. Perhaps even implying, could you just go ahead and heal her so that we can be rid of the noise that she's making? So in response to their annoyance, Jesus says... I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, it's not clear whether Jesus was saying this directly to the disciples or to the woman. Some scholars argue that it was said to the disciples, but intentionally within earshot of this woman. Either way, Jesus is making it clear that God had sent him to the Jews, not the Gentiles. He is making a very strong statement that his mission is only directed to the house of Israel. A few chapters prior in Matthew 10, we read of Jesus sending out the 12 disciples on their first solo mission, and Jesus instructs them like this, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, it appears that in that passage, Jesus was instructing them to go and be gracious freely as you have received, freely you give but also indicating that there was a temporary limit set upon their mission. They were to go only to the Jews. And Jesus evidently is applying the same restriction to himself. Through the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, we read these words about the people of Israel. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. So Jesus' mission to the Jews, the people of Israel, is a matter of God's faithfulness to the covenant he had made with Israel. These were the people God had chosen to demonstrate his love and power to all the nations of the earth. They had lost their way. And Jesus, as the good shepherd, was trying to bring them back to their home, to their resting place. Now, Jesus' statement in earshot of this woman was perhaps an attempt to justify sending her away without the healing that she was asking for. But let's read what happens next. The woman came and knelt before him. In response to this statement, which spoke of exclusivity and exclusion, we witnessed the remarkable persistence of a mother desperate for her daughter's healing. Undeterred by this rejection, she's even willing to challenge social conventions by making a personal approach to a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi, and falling at his feet. The posture of kneeling before him not only implies humility and desperation, but actually the language here used also implies that she fell on her knees in worship. She is convinced that Jesus is the one who can heal her daughter, even from a distance. She makes no argument, but in the context of worship and desperation, she simply makes her plea once again, Lord, help me. And Jesus, again, reiterates the priority of the people Israel. He says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, I'm afraid there's no way to grace this up, guys. Jesus has literally just insulted her and referred to this foreign woman and her people as dogs. In this historic and cultural context, Gentiles were sometimes likened to unclean dogs that roamed the streets. 
And yet, obviously, in any cultural setting, if you equate one people group as children and another as dogs, it's an incredibly demeaning and offensive thing to say. Jesus, it seems, is being insensitive and downright rude and letting her know that as a non-Jew, she should expect no consideration from him as the Messiah. Jesus is making it clear to her that the Jewish people are the children of the household who are entitled to the bread. This was the universally held belief of the Jewish people. Those on the outside, those considered unclean, were excluded from God's blessing. In Mark's version, there is a hint that there is change to come. It says, let the children first have all they want, which obviously implies that the Gentiles' turn may follow. But in Matthew's version, there isn't even that small piece of comfort. And you would expect that upon hearing this derogatory, discriminatory comment, the woman would have been angry or defensive or simply backed away, rejected in humiliation. But she does none of those things. She corrects him. When he said, it isn't right, she responds by saying, yes, it is. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This woman adamantly refuses to accept the implication of Jesus' words. She turns his own parable against him, saying, if Gentiles are considered to be dogs, they still deserve to be fed, even if it is the leftovers. Now, in cold print, we aren't able to detect the body language, the facial expression, the general demeanor of Jesus in this encounter. Was there a wry smile? Was there a, a raised eyebrow or a twinkle in his eye? Was there some hint on his face that perhaps was subtly communicated to her that his previous statement would not be his final word on the matter? As I've sat with this passage, I've imagined Jesus doing what sometimes good teachers do. Sometimes they intentionally try to draw out an able student by making a deliberate challenge that may not even reflect the teacher's personal viewpoint, simply to see how the student will respond. I like to imagine Jesus instinctively knowing this woman, seeing her heart, intentionally creating space for her to reveal her fierce and resilient spirit. I believe Jesus wanted to be gracious to her and that this conventional Jewish rebuff served to test her grasp of what exactly she believed. For me, the subtext of this interaction is the same question that Jesus asked Peter, and who do you say I am? I believe Jesus knew that this woman would rise to the challenge and that he would gladly and willingly extend his mission to include a little Gentile girl in response to the feisty faith of her Gentile mother. Now, obviously, this is purely speculation. This is Gemma sitting, you know, by herself in a room, imaginatively engaging with this text. But it is based on the knowledge of who God says he is in that passage we read in Isaiah 30, who longs to be gracious to us, who waits to be gracious to us and to show us compassion. But regardless of what Jesus was communicating non-verbally, this woman seems to be aware of the widespread idea that the abundant blessing of God would also be made available to Gentiles who were righteous. So even though she doesn't claim make any claim to the banquet itself, she believes that she will be able to enjoy something of the overflow, which she describes using the image of crumbs falling from the table. Her response is disarming because it expresses both humility and incredible faith. Her use of the term masters actually suggests an acceptance of the superiority of the people of Israel over the Gentiles, 
but also demonstrates a constancy of faith that Jesus can, should, and will meet her request. She refuses to accept the traditionally held Jewish belief that Gentiles were excluded from the grace of God. Now, we know that Jesus has already envisioned a multi-racial people of God, and this current limitation or restriction is merely temporary. Previously in Matthew 8, after the healing of the centurion's servant, we read this. Jesus says, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And here we see this Canaanite woman demonstrating a truly prophetic grasp of the new covenant that through Christ, a way will be made for all people to come from the east and the west, Jew and Gentile, to sit down at the banquet feast of the king, not based on their gender or race or ethnicity or class, but simply because of their faith. It is her boldness and humility in this statement that tips the scale and ultimately changes the mind of Jesus. Jesus is moved by her faith and finally responds to this woman's persistence with the good news that her request has been granted. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted and your daughter is healed at that moment. This is the only time in Matthew's gospel where someone's faith is qualified by Jesus as being great. Jesus' words to her echo the words he spoke to the Roman centurion. In both instances, Jesus praises them for their faith. In contrast to the little faith that he rebukes Peter for and the general unbelief of the Jews that Jesus always is remarking upon. And regardless of his previously harsh words, there is no sign of reluctance on Jesus's part in granting the healing of her daughter, but rather an exceptionally warm commendation of her faith. Her humility and faith is a delight to Jesus and ministers to the heart of Jesus. Both this healing and that of the Roman centurion's daughter creates a sense of anticipation, a foreshadowing of the ultimate goal of the mission of Jesus, which is to bring blessing and redemption to the whole world. If you continue to read through the Gospel of Matthew, the mission of the Gentiles uh, to the Gentiles becomes increasingly clear. This passage reveals to us that it's not physical Jewishness that determines the blessing of God, but ultimately faith in Jesus as the Messiah. After his resurrection, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out and continue the work that he started, but this time without restriction or limitation. Matthew 28 says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. They were then instructed to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promised Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who would fill them with power to be witnesses for Jesus, not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but also Samaria, to the kinds of regions where this woman lived and to the ends of the earth, to all people. And on this Pentecost Sunday, we remember that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles so that they would be equipped to take the gospel to the nations without limit, without restriction, without discrimination. The Apostle Paul was mandated by God to be an apostle specifically to the Gentiles, and to, he continually emphasized that the promise of God was for everyone, not according to Jewish privilege, but simply by faith in the Lordship of Christ, a faith that was demonstrated ahead of her time by this Canaanite woman. Now, we started by asking the question, 
what does it look like for us to journey forwards as a community when two parties have differing perspectives on the same circumstances? And I, see, I think we see this modeled in this teaching text. In this passage, the present circumstance is the sickness of a little girl. The mother is desperate for her healing and believes it should be so. Jesus appears reluctant to minister to her because they are Gentiles. What do we learn from this passage that we can apply to our present circumstances? What do we learn about having a gracious heart? Now, I don't often do this, but I'm going to give you three words, and they all start with the same letter. I'm pretty sure my grandfather would be so proud of me right now, guys. Here they are, humility, honor, and healing. And I think we see these attributes in both Jesus and the woman in this story. So let's just start with humility. Humility stems from an honest understanding of who we are and who we're not. Honesty and humility are intrinsically linked. This woman was brutally honest about who she was and what she needed. She was willing to do anything for the sake of her daughter. She completely let go of any need to impress or manage her reputation or concern herself with what other people thought of her. She was fully and completely herself. True humility, Thomas Merton says, is intelligent self-respect, which keeps us from thinking too highly or too meanly of ourselves. Pride is what makes us pretend. Humility makes us true and real. Our false self is always afraid of looking small or inadequate. We live in a world where we desperately want people to know and affirm how gifted and valued and qualified we are. We compare and compete because we desperately don't want to be overlooked. She knew who she was, and she knew who she wasn't. She didn't have to justify or make excuses or become defensive. She knew her value, so she didn't have to get worked up when Jesus seemed dismissive of her. When we know who we are, we are loved and valued. We don't need to prove it to others. We are free to be who we are, no more, no less. A truly humble person is deeply at home in their own skin. They're not swayed by the flattery or criticism of another. And because of that, they can live freely, audaciously, generously with nothing to prove. Mother Teresa famously said, it's in being humble that our love becomes real, devoted, and ardent. If you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know what you are. The woman in our story also knew who Jesus was. She knew he could heal her daughter. Excuse me. She knew that he could heal her daughter. Humility begins when we recognize that we are not God. We are not in control. We recognize that we are dependent on the goodness and compassionate of God. This woman literally postured herself in a position of humility, kneeling at the feet of the one who is worthy of her praise and submission. And her subsequent boldness was based in humility. And it's clear that God delights in this. He delights in our brutal, raw honesty before him, even our willingness to wrestle with him. This mother was not engaging in an argument to be right. She was just desperate for healing. Pride makes us want to be right. In our home, we often say, if you have the choice to be right or to be kind, choose kind. Humility chooses being kind over being right. Jesus was also humble in this interaction. His mission was first and foremost to the Jewish people, but he wasn't so determined to be right that he was willing to overlook compassion. Jesus was willing to lose an argument. Jesus, son of God, was willing to change his mind in this interaction. 
Having a gracious heart begins with humility. It begins with recognizing that we are not God, we don't have all the answers, and we are not always right. St. Augustine said, do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? First lay the foundation of humility. Humility is said to be the mother of all the virtues, and it is our solid foundation as a community as we move forward into this next season. I would love it if any, everyone in our church family was able to be honest about where they're at. I fully know that last week celebrating felt like a choice for some of you, and that you woke up on Monday morning more sad than you'd been in a while. And if that's how you feel, you don't need to feel guilty about saying that. But if you're excited, please be excited. You have permission to be honest and not to feel guilty about being ready to move forward. We need that energy and excitement. In response to Jesus saying, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs, the, women, the woman, as we said, had the courage to say, actually, it is right. If you hear someone who is grieving in our community saying, you know what, it's not right that they left and we've been left behind and we have to figure all this out moving forward. It's okay to say in love, it is right. God's doing a new thing. I'm eager to see what it is. But equally, if you hear someone in our community who's rejoicing and they say, it's not right that I'm still having to hang around and wait while all these people are still grieving and sad, it's okay to say in love, it is right. It's right to take the lowest and the slowest pace for the sake of grace and compassion. When we live with humility, knowing who we are and not needing to prove or compete, we can truly become a people of honor. We can hold each other in high esteem. Even after Jesus ignored her, this woman continued to call him Lord. She continued to honor him with her words. And even after he made a statement of rejection and exclusion, she still chose to honor him with her posture. And he also honored her by recognizing and commending her faith and granting her request. How do we relate to each other when we feel differently? In humility, we honor each other's journey and we call each other onwards. Finally, this is a story of healing, not necessarily of personal healing, but of healing for someone else. The woman asked for mercy and she got it. But as Tyler said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus gives us more than mercy, he gives compassion. The gracious heart of this woman made way for healing and freedom beyond herself, first for her daughter and then for an entire nation. This is a story of someone giving their time and energy for the sake of someone else, for the sake of someone else's healing and wholeness. And that's what gracious hearts do. They say, let me set aside my needs for the sake of yours. And I wanna set us a challenge this week to simply engage in conversation from within our church family um, someone in our church family who feels differently than you do about our present situation. In other words, if you're grieving, intentionally seek out someone who isn't. Ask them what God has been revealing to them about our future as a church. Ask them what their dreams are, what they hope for, what they believe God is gonna do in this next chapter. Honor their story and allow their energy to carry you forwards into greater healing. And if you're someone who's rejoicing, intentionally make room for someone who isn't yet. Ask them how they're feeling and why they're feeling that way. Ask them what God has been speaking to them. What have they lost that you know nothing of? And how can that knowledge enrich your dreaming and praying for our, our future as a church? What do we want to not lose or forget as we move forward? Set aside your own agenda and forge a way forward together. Wrestle it out in honesty and with humility and honor.
If we go back quickly to the story of Ezra, we read that those grieving and those rejoicing joined their voices with praise and thanksgiving, and they sang together, he is good, his love towards us endures forever. This is what anchors us together in hope, regardless of whether we're grieving or rejoicing or somewhere in between. God's love for us endures forever. And later in Ezra, when the rebuilding is completed and it's time to dedicate the finished temple, this is what we read. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They went together on a journey, those who were rejoicing and those who were grieving, and they all came to a place of joy. In my last sermon before COVID hit, I talked about all the reasons why I believe God was leading us into a season of joy. And the following week, we stopped meeting. And a year and a half later, we're still inching back towards normality. But I have to tell you that I wholeheartedly still believe that joy is where we're going. There is a season of joy coming soon with our names written all over it. And I don't think we're going to have to have a big on-ramp to that. I don't think it's going to be years of building back up to that. I actually think it's going to be like, you know, when the children in Narnia step out of the wardrobe and it's like no time at all has passed. I feel like that's what God's going to do. And I would like us to go there together with gracious hearts, hearts that are humble and honest, hearts that can honor each other's journeys, hearts that will lay down their own agenda for the healing of each other. Why don't we stand together? I'm going to invite the band to come back up. I just want to invite you, maybe just close your eyes so that you can just focus on yourself and your relationship with God. You might even want to just hold out your hands in a posture of receiving. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, you know us and you see us. Lord, you know all about this next chapter that we still are a little bit in the dark about. And Lord, today as we stand here as a community, we recognize that you are God and we recognize that you are good to all, that you wait, you long to be compassionate and gracious towards us. And Lord, I pray that that would be our anchor, that that would be our hope in you and who you are and your goodness to us. Lord, I pray that you would bring us together in unity of heart and mind that we could be gracious to one another, that we could be humble and honest, that we could honor one another and lead each other into greater healing. So we just invite you to come, Holy Spirit. I pray that you minister, God, to the people in this room, to the people watching at home. Lord, what is it that you wanna say to us today?
I'm just remembering, um, I had a moment this week when I was feeling a bit overwhelmed and I went into my bedroom to have a little hopeful moment of solitude and silence and no sooner had I gotten in there and my head was in my hands that my daughter walked in and I didn't even open my eyes but I knew it was her and, uh, and she just obviously saw that I was overwhelmed and she walked up to me and she cupped her her hands around my ears my ear and she just whispered really loudly the Holy Spirit is with you and she just walked out and I just feel like I feel like the Lord wants to just like have each of us hear that whisper in our ear this morning on this day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is for you. What if the, the network, the interconnections between all of us in a community, in this community, just were like filled with those whispers towards each other? The Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is with you in your rejoicing. The Holy Spirit is with you in your grief. The Holy Spirit is with us and for us, and God is good. And he will lead us forward into all that he has for us. So as we worship together, I just invite you in whatever way feels like a, a natural or helpful posture to you to just worship. As the people of God, let's be like the people of Ezra who join our voices together and say, God is good and his love for us, his love for Oaks Church Brooklyn endures forever. And just know that if anything has come up for you today and you're just like, oh, I, just, I just feel like I would love someone to stand with me and pray, or you just want to come and kneel, the prayer rugs are here. People from our, our staff and our elders and prayer team would love to pray with you if you would love to receive prayer. So let's just worship and declare together that God is good and that God is faithful and minister to each other.